Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Hello, listener. This is your producer, Nate. This week, we haven't recorded an episode since Ryan just had a baby. Well, Ryan's wife had a baby, and he's on paternity leave. Last week, I went to the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers annual meeting. I was here in Irving, Texas. There, they had an event with three economists talking about trends in the oil and gas industry, so we're going to listen to that today. The first economist is Carr Ingham, an independent consulting economist from West Texas and a big friend of ours. He's the author of the Texas Petro Index, which we'll link to in our show notes, and is also a go-to guy for oil and gas trends and analysis here in Texas. We're always glad to hear from him, which, by the way, is why we're having him on next week on the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. Our second economist is Dr. Dean Foreman, chief economist at the American Petroleum Institute. Listeners of the Energy Week podcast will recognize Dr. Foreman since he comes on and talks to Ryan and Ellen once a month. Now, both he and our next economist have lists of accomplishments longer than my arm, and also Mr. Ingham introduces both of them, so we're not going to read their bios here. Needless to say, Dr. Foreman knows his stuff, as does our next economist, Dr. Minnie Ussel. She is the senior economist at the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank. Miss Ussel is a superlative in her field and has a lot to say. Now, as a note of warning here, all of our speakers today used slides in their presentations at the meeting. I've cut some of the audio where they've talked about those because we don't have the visuals, and the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers has not provided those presentations for public viewing yet. So in order to keep all of this simple and to avoid confusing you with talk about green bars and black lines and so on and so forth, I've cut some of that stuff out. I'll be back throughout the talks to introduce slides or cuts that don't really make sense unless they're contextualized. And of course, I'll be back at the end of the show to see you out. Enjoy the talks. The next voice you hear will be Mr. Ingham's. So welcome to the annual meeting and trade show of the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers. This is actually our first experience outside the great city of Wichita Falls. Um, and so our uh, first time in Irving, so this is a great venue and I'm very grateful to all of you for being here this afternoon. I'm extremely grateful to our two panelists for, uh, for this discussion. Um, so the way this is going to work is I'm going to run through just a few slides to sort of set up the discussion and then each of our panelists will do the same. Uh, I'll, I'll, um, I'll introduce them in greater detail later, but uh, Dr. Dean Foreman is the chief economist at API, the American Petroleum Institute from DC. So he's here to join our panel, and then Dr. Mene Ussel, who is uh, uh, an economist and everything else under the sun with the uh, Dallas Federal Reserve Bank, extraordinarily, two extraordinarily accomplished energy economists, and I assure you it's my honor to share the stage with them. So thanks to both of you for coming. Um, uh, the energy economy, I, I don't think there's been a day, um, certainly since I've been you know, doing oil and gas economic work, 
that oil and gas economics, energy economics, and all the things surrounding that in Texas, domestically, globally, is not just the most exciting thing out there, uh, economically speaking. There's always something happening. It's an industry of volatility and cyclical movement, uh, just all manner of things surrounding this discussion. So as Chairman Beck indicated, a number of years ago, I just put together this little piece of work called the Texas Petro Index, which is nothing more than an upstream industry, upstream economy tracking device in the state of Texas. And so I'm just going to hustle through uh, some of, of, of that information and, uh, and indicate what I think a couple of the implications of that are in terms of where we are cyclically right now and what the bigger picture of that is. Well, that's actually the Texas Petro Index dating uh, from its um, uh, base month and year of January 1995. So at that time, we set this up in about 2002 or 2003, and we wanted to go back far enough to capture the events of the late 1990s, which we had a pretty sizable cyclical um, uh, upturn uh, then, but no, not so. we didn't want to go back to the sort of 1980s and muddy this thing up by doing that. So that first big cycle there from 2002 to 2008, as most of you know, I expect, was a very natural gas-driven expansion over that period of time. 80% of the rigs in Texas were drilling for natural gas, and certainly that was the case toward the end of it. It was during this uh, cyclical expansion then that the Barnett Shale was cracked open um, and became a major uh, domestic oil and gas uh, uh, production play. Uh, a recession-induced downturn uh, from 2008 to late 2009. And then off we go on, uh, on the 2010 to 2014-15 expansion, um, which was a crude oil-driven expansion. Well over 90% of the rigs in the state were drilling for crude oil over that period of time. And it was, of course, during this period of time that we exploded Texas statewide, Permian, uh, although less so than has been the case lately. Certainly statewide in domestic uh, U.S. crude oil production. Uh, and then the price collapsed 2014 to 2016, and then sort of off we go again. Uh, but again, the instructive part of that is that that index uh, is nowhere close to its late 2014 peak. And that will be a common theme here, prices. Now, some of my slides kind of didn't update and translate, but... Uh, you know, the short version of that story is you see those price spikes from 2008, sort of where we were in the general time frame leading up to mid-2014. The daily low in posted prices, which is uh, the price per barrel for WTI that's offered to a producer on a given day, which is typically 3 or $4 less than the futures price, bottomed out at 22.75 on February the 11th. And we're, you know, mid-50s now. I mean, we had this kind of um, spooking uh, of the markets in the fourth quarter of 2014. The daily posted price actually got down to 39-something on Christmas Eve and has recovered uh, since then. But again, broadly speaking, crude oil prices nowhere near where they were during these prior peaks. The gas prices, bleh, same as always, terrible. Uh, rig count, um, nowhere close to where it was in late 2014. Declining since uh, the latter months of last year, uh, the March monthly average uh, actually fell below 500 to 499, I think, uh, and 491, I think, last uh, last Friday. So the rate count actually continues to decline um, even through right now. Uh, well completions again spikes in those, um, but still well below those prior peaks. This is an extraordinary story, of course. Uh, crude oil production begins to uh, increase. So in response to 
an 80% collapse in crude oil prices, 75% decline in the rig count, 70% um, decline in the number of drilling permits issued, 115 to 120,000 direct upstream jobs lost in Texas. Finally, we get a decline in production, uh, daily production of less than 14%. Uh, so as of right about now, we're on the cusp of moving uh, beyond 5 million barrels a day produced uh, in the great state of Texas. Um, and of course, just that extraordinary increase. So again, when the conventional wisdom was in the mid part of the decade of the 2000s, uh, that this was simply not possible, wasn't geologically possible. Mr. Ingham then went on to discuss natural gas trends, but natural gas doesn't really appear in these talks, so I wanted to cut to Dr. Foreman's talk here. I want to introduce Dr. Dean Foreman. He is the chief economist at the American Petroleum Institute. And listen, if I read the bio of each of these folks from start to finish, that's all I would do between now and the end of the panel. Uh, so I'll just tell you a couple of things <clears throat> about Dr. Foreman. <coughs> Pardon me. Uh, currently chief economist at API, the American Petroleum Institute. Uh, formerly chief economist at ExxonMobil. Um, spent time in Saudi Aramco, did a number of other things. He is, again, is an extraordinarily accomplished energy economist. I'm so honored to have him here. Appreciate him taking time to come. Um, got a PhD in economics from uh, University of Florida, correct? Exactly. So, uh, Dr. Foreman, uh, please welcome Dr. Dean Foreman to the stage. We should feel free to talk about anything energy related. I'm going to show you just a handful of snapshots of things that matter now, things that are remarkable. So month of, after month last year and coming into this year, we continue to set new production records. And this is remarkable. Carr just showed you the downturn starting in 2015 with oil prices and what that did to Texas's production. But that coupled with natural gas prices having remained at or below around $3 per million BTU for four consecutive years, this has meant that the industry has gone through nothing short of a renaissance of trying to tighten its belt, increase its productivity, and find really viable ways of moving forward. And now the challenge is to find markets and infrastructure and everything to go with it. But the numbers shortly are this. For oil, as of February, 12.1 million barrels per day add almost another 5 million barrels per day of natural gas liquids. So that's ethane, propane, butane, and field natural gasoline. And in addition to that, record natural gas production on a dry basis or market production of 89 billion cubic feet per day from the EIA. So you add that all together and this is truly a revolution in the United States, but none of this happens unless we have infrastructure, and with that infrastructure, you see consumer benefits that also are remarkable. I'm going to show you some slides on that. Dr. Foreman pulls up a slide comparing former and current break-even prices for drilling a well in the back in formation in the Permian Basin. But in the Permian Basin, year on year, the price that's required to drill a well and break even has continued to come down, and it's in the low $40 per barrel range. That's remarkable that these numbers weren't thought to be sustainable below $50 per barrel not long ago. Notice that current West Texas intermediate spot prices as of February were sitting close to $60 per barrel. So even as this, those prices have continued to, uh, breaking prices have fallen, so that means increased productivity, 
increased business possibilities and the fact that it's well below even current market prices that are down from what they were late last year. This is a green light for drilling. It's good for the industry. Now the Bakken formation has had some backsliding in terms of those costs. So keep in mind that the Bakken is a little higher cost. It's deeper. And they ban flaring. There's more reliance on rail. So the break-even price is slightly higher than it is in the Permian. Year on year, it's also gone up, but it's also a green light for production because it's well below the current prices. The productivity trends are shown on the right. So the Bakken, very high productivity in terms of what it produces, more expensive to drill, but net-net in terms of the break-even and what's required, it's a good business case to, to move the business ahead. The Permian has had a little bit of ebbing early this year in terms of productivity, but it's still strong. So these are also underpinning a continued wave of production for the United States, and by the EIA's estimates, we should go from that 12.1 million barrels per day of oil up toward 13 million barrels per day later this year. Now, let's, let, just a couple of snapshots as to why this is really remarkable. Back in 2009, we were a net importer as a country of 10 million barrels per day of oil. As of February, for the very first time, that was 1 million barrels per day, 1.1 by API estimates. So if you take that EIA projection of production increase this year, which is close to a million barrels per day, we could be a net exporter of petroleum as a country, true energy independence by a strict definition this year. That's remarkable, and we're already a net exporter of natural gas. So let's compare one of the challenges for the Permian Basin here at home. You've got various pipelines that are moving this product to market. Again, none of this happens without infrastructure. It has to continue to be built out. And we've seen in recent months an increased differential or difference in price between West Texas Intermediate and Brent as an international crude price marker, upwards of like $9 per barrel. That has been as narrow as $3 per barrel in the last year, but it's really widened partly because there's increased reliance on rail, and this is not to denigrate rail in any way. It's a really good partner for the industry with a good safety record. But the more economic solution and the most reliable solution here is pipelines. And to get that pipeline capacity built out, the help in that area is supposed to come in the third and fourth quarter of 2019, so later this year and more to come there. As that happens, you would expect then, uh, API can't predict the price for you, but that differential should be eaten away by the fact that you can move the crude, crude more economically to market. Now, coming back to EIA's estimate of what this means on a global scale, this is a chart of the supply-demand balance, shown in blue. So if supply is exceeding demand, prices tend to go down, as you saw in 2015 and 16. When supply is exceeding, excuse me, when demand is exceeding supply, it's just the opposite. It tends to support prices. And in the red line, you see the price trend for Brent crude oil here being supported through 2017 and 18. Right now, the EIA remarkably is projecting a continued market surplus on average of about a half million barrels per day between 2019 and 20. But they have prices staying flat at $60 per barrel out that period. Why would you have a sustained surplus yet flat pricing? They're assuming also that OPEC is continuing to dial back in production to offset that and help support the prices. So that's interesting, right? Because this says the US continues to grow. Texas is leading at the forefront of that. 
And OPEC is continuing to manage the market to support these prices, but it's doing so at its own cost. That cost is in terms of market share on a global level. Dr. Foreman then pulls up a chart that tracks quarterly GDP growth with quarterly change in the oil and gas industry in the U.S. This is oil, natural gas, and natural gas liquids. And remarkably, you see a 0.82 direct correlation in those changes. And when you get a change-to-change -change correlation that's that strong on that basis, that tells you, doesn't tell you the causality of it, but it tells you there's a really strong intertwined relationship between these two things. And if you think about it, one message is that you don't get the economic growth that the United States has had over these last several years without having the energy to go with it. And the other is that especially in the producing regions like Texas, you actually are generating a lot of economic growth in incrementally by virtue of, frankly, turning on its head the historical relationship where the consumer benefits, the price you pay at the pump was always the first order impact that mattered the most on a nationwide scale. But increasingly, Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, North Dakota, Colorado, New Mexico, you've got a lot of states with a lot of skin in the game. Plus now, on the gas side, Ohio and Pennsylvania. So it really matters. This is a revolution in an energy renaissance. Now very quickly, natural gas prices globally, I mentioned $3 per million BTU in the US, less than that, yeah, sitting at Lake Charles, $2.72 as of February. International prices are routinely two to three times that. What that's meant in terms of lower prices, with no gymnastics, no inflation adjustments, this is just daily Henry Hub prices in Louisiana, spot prices of natural gas. And it's really just a remarkable story to see how the volatility and the levels of the prices have changed. From 1997 all the way to 2009, you routinely, each January, would see a winter spike that went to 10 to $20 per million BTU. And you could count on that because of Frankly, this volatility that went endemically with both the combination of limited storage, limited infrastructure, limited ability to produce. Since 2010, which it, even though the Barnett really started ramping up in 2005 here locally, on a nationwide scale, we would consider 2010 on really the renaissance for natural gas, the highest of the January peaks. And there are still some peaks. There's always going to be seasonality in gas just due to, to winter demand for heating. The highest of those doesn't get to the lowest of the peaks in the previous period. And in terms of what that's meant for Americans' pocketbooks, the EIA tracks in its state energy data system uh, by fuel, by sector, by state, exactly what each state is spending on energy. And for the latest data, and we'll get a 2017 snapshot come April, but for the latest comparison of 2010 versus 16 that we can do, you see a $300 billion difference lower prices hitting American pocketbooks by virtue of lower, largely lower oil and natural gas prices driving that. Electricity is also in here. So $300 billion, $180 billion worth of that is sitting in the transportation sector. So these, again, it's all intertwined. The consumer benefits don't happen. It's not just a nationwide story. You see it here in Texas, but with Ohio and Pennsylvania becoming major gas producers, it's reversed the price story that traditionally they used to pay price premiums, now that most of the eastern seaboard, except for New England, which has not built infrastructure, everybody else is paying a discount to Henry Hobb by virtue of that. So these are phenomenal stories, and I'm glad to be open to questions during our discussion.
That's such an interesting discussion to talk about the relationship between the oil and gas economy and the Texas economy, the national economy is quite correct, of course. Uh, the oil and gas, just the expansion of oil and upstream oil and gas development around the country was a great contributor to economic growth uh, during our recent periods of economic growth and certainly the periods of prosperity post-recession, even more so in Texas, uh, where we, of course, are more connected to the, uh, to the economy. Uh, uh, the oil and gas business is more connected, has a greater share of the Texas economy. Um, I, as the Alliance Petroleum Economist, actually serve on the Texas Comptroller's Economic Roundtable, which is just a group that is convened to kind of uh, give some guidance to the Comptroller in setting uh, revenue estimates and ultimately biennial uh, budgets. So that we met last October, actually two energy economists on that group, myself and Mark Finley, who is the retiring uh, a uh, uh, global economist uh, with uh, BP. I really wanted him here today, but he retired two days ago, so he welched out on us. And so, uh, anyway, um, uh, next on uh, our, our panel is uh, the great Dr. Uh, Manet Youssel. Again, I could read this thing from start to finish, and we'd be here from now till kingdom come. So let me tell you what you need to know about her. She is uh, at this point, the senior economist at the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank. She is a former president of the National Association for Business Economics, uh, to which I belong. So Dr. Foreman also belongs to that group. I think you co-chair the Energy Roundtable presently with Mark Finley with, from BP. Um, uh, she is a past president of the U.S. Association for Energy Economics. She is a past president of the International Association of Energy Economics. She was a U.S. Association uh, Energy Fellow in 2007. Uh, she taught economics at LSU. She got her PhD from Rice. And again, this is paragraphs longer than that, but I'm going to stop that now and turn this over to uh, my friend Dr. Manet Youssef. So you know what this means? It means I can't say no to anybody. <laughs> Being president of this and that, it just basically can't say no. Okay. Good afternoon. Thank you, Carr, for that great introduction. And I'm going to um, talk a little bit about the global oil market. Uh, I just tried to make sure that Dean and I didn't uh, say the same things, so having seen his um, presentation. So we've had a very volatile oil market lately, and both Carr and Dean talked about that. This is partly due to geopolitics, partly due to policy changes, such as the sanctions, and partly due to the amazing amount of oil that's coming out of U.S. shale. Um, now, we have cuts by OPEC uh, since November of 2016. This is uh, cuts by OPEC and Russia and some other countries. And so those production cuts increased, let prices go up in, from the mid-40s to the mid-50s in 2017. And then we saw prices go to the mid-60s uh, last year. But then in the middle of the year, we decided to reinstate uh, sanctions on Iran. Prices moved up to the mid-70s. Um, then, with some prompting by our president, uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia decided that they were going to increase production to offset the declines in Iran. Well, what happened was we had waivers. And so those waivers, the, the decline in Iran did not happen as much as everybody thought. Um, OPEC and Russia increased production, and then we had a huge amount of um, oil coming out of the shales, and we were awash in oil, and you see the price, it sort of went down to 45, and, and Carr was showing it uh, even lower at some local um, uh, hubs. So where we are now is 
when this happened, the Saudis decided, oh, we better cut production. Um, so they got together again with Russia, especially in their uh, December meeting, and decided that they were going to cut production by about 1.2 million barrels per day. Uh, so now we have prices moving up slightly. I looked, uh, the, the Wall Street Journal had Friday prices at $60. That's the spot price for WTI. And so um, that's where we are. Now, as, as Dean mentioned, last year, every month, U.S. production was a record high. And um, the December number for, for the U.S., we, well, we added about 1.9 million barrels per day last year. And there are some monthly numbers, but there are also these uh, weekly numbers for production. They're somewhat noisy, but if you look at the last number for weekly, um, it was 12.1 million barrels per day for the U.S. So that's an amazing amount of oil coming out of the U.S. Um, so last year, at the beginning of last year, prices got a boost from a pretty strong global economy. Going forward, the global economy is not as strong, and in fact, if you look at the IMF numbers, expectations are this year is going to be less than last year in terms of global growth, so that's going to uh, help, it's going to sort of dampen demand for oil a little bit this year. And um, again, because of all this geopolitics, there's a lot of uncertainty in the market. Last year, we pushed past Russia to become the number one oil producer in the world. And uh, so you see us there, that's 1197 is the December number, monthly number. And then I have Texas at 5.27. So that's a month, that's not a monthly number. The monthly number was like 4.98 or something. That's again from the weekly numbers. As I said, those are somewhat noisy, but that's the March, end of March weekly number or mid-March. It's 5.27 million barrels per day. So you can see Texas, is a huge producer all by itself um, in the global market. Then for gas, I'm not going to talk about gas at all, but the U.S. has been, a, has been the, the number one producer of gas for years. And if you look at Texas, though, again, Texas is a very, very uh, prominent producer of uh, natural gas as well. And now, of course, there's Pennsylvania coming in after um, 2009. Okay. Um, so for Saudis, the, the outlook is somewhat murky. And um, what has happened is shale has changed the dynamics of the oil market. So OPEC is in a quandary. Um, so they're trying to stabilize the market, but it's sort of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. If it's too high a price, shale flourishes. If it's too low a price, their fiscal uh, problems are, are, are become, uh, well, they, they have fiscal problems. And so they got to get it just right. And, and so in terms of Saudi Arabia in 2019, I sort of thought this would be fun to sort of have the good, the bad, and the ugly for them. So the good is the production in Iran and Venezuela declines. Shale underperforms. The global economy beats expectations, so we have a lot of demand. The bad would be the Iran waivers are extended. Uh, Venezuela declines. And shale and global economy, they're all sort of as we expect. Now, the ugly would be that the waivers are extended, the Venezuelan output stabilizes, it's at like 1.14 right now, and shale surprises to the upside and the global economy to the downside, and that would be very ugly for Saudi Arabia and oil prices. So a lot of uncertainty, as I said, very murky for the Saudis. Okay, so let me talk a little bit about how shale has changed the effect of oil prices on the economy. 
In the old days, nationally, in the past, um, oil price shocks have followed uh, have been followed by recessions. So if you look at after the Second World War, 10 out of 11 national recessions followed oil price shocks. Now for Texas, though, it's just the opposite because high oil prices benefit Texas and have always benefited Texas. And so, in fact, Texas has gone into recession when oil prices collapse. So just the opposite. But the shale boom has actually changed some of this dynamics. And, and as, as Dean mentioned a little bit, I'll go into a similar type of stuff. So our vulnerability to oil price shocks is quite a bit lower now than it used to be in the past. And this is partly due to a changing economy, but the shale has also been a major factor. So on the demand side, um, the dependence on economies, um, or our, our dependence on oil from, um, well, our dependence on oil overall has fallen like in the last 50 years. So right now, we, for every dollar of GDP, we use about 40% less oil than we used to. And, and so um, if you look at oil share in GDP, uh, it was about 2.6% in 1970, it's about 0.8% right now. So that's part of the picture. Um, on the supply side, the increase in uh, U.S. output has led to a significant decline in our imports, and Dean talked about that. And so they were about 36% of consumption in 2004. Right now they're, um, uh, or sorry, they were about 51% of consumption. They're now about 36% of consumption. I'm not talking about net, though. I'm talking about um, just imports, not, at, not net imports. And then we also had that we were importing oil from very politically unstable parts of the world. And we don't have to do that anymore. So in terms of security, that was a huge security risk for the US. In that sense, that security risk has declined incredibly and it's going to continue to decline as we produce more oil and as we become um, less and less of an importer. Now, then the economy is a little bit more efficient right now too. So if you think about the 70s and 80s versus where we are now, um, we have a lot less regulation. Um, I think maybe most of you will remember that uh, we had regulations that caused rigidities in both energy markets and financial markets. We had um, oil price controls, we had gasoline price ceilings, we had um, you know, uh, refinery, um, petroleum allocation rules for refiners, those are all gone. And then we also had some industries that use a lot of oil, they were deregulated in the 70s, such as the airlines and trucking, and so now they can actually respond to market prices much more effectively and efficiently than they could in the past. And then of course we have better management of uncertainty through futures market. We have developed a whole financial market for energy. Now, and at the end of 2015, we finally got rid of that oil export ban. That was left over from the 70s. Um, so oil exports, which were basically zero in 2015, are now um, more than 3 million barrels per day. So um, that has changed quite a bit, too. Now, um, I'm not talking about gas at all, but I'll just say that um, natural gas exports Natural gas, obviously, production has increased a lot. Dean showed that. But we, our LNG exports um, have also increased exponentially. I'm not showing a picture here. Oops, sorry. <laughs> Still here. Um, but 
our LNG exports went from nearly zero to about uh, one TCF in 2018. So huge amount of LNG exports and that's going to continue also. And finally, even though energy investment is pretty small in uh, private fixed investment in the GDP numbers, oil and gas investment has been a very strong contributor to the growth in private fixed investment in GDP. So when you have high oil prices and a lot of activity and drilling, that actually boosts GDP through increased spending um, in private fixed investment. Now, of course, in 2015 and 2016, it also caused um, it, oil prices were down, recounts were uh, coming down, that also affected GDP negatively. So these days, just to sort of sum it up, high oil prices don't affect the economy as negatively as in the past. High prices help producing regions, as, as Dean was saying, and states, and they also have a positive effect on investment, and so that sort of boosts GDP. Okay, so I'm going to talk very briefly about our survey. The Dallas Fed does a quarterly survey. We started this in 2014. Um, we survey about 200 oil and gas firms, EMP and service firms, and we ask about uh, prices, business activity, investments, all that kind of stuff. And here you're seeing some of our indexes and how they've changed in the past year and this quarter. So last quarter, as you know, was not a good quarter for the oil industry, and you can see that business activity was almost zero, um, and company outlook was actually negative for the first time since 2016. But um, now they have bounced back. All of these have, oh, business activity has bounced back, company outlook has bounced back. The two that are still declining, though, are capital, capital expenditures and employment. Now the capital expenditures, we talked to a lot of contacts and they are telling us that they are not planning on spending as much this year compared to last. So that's that, but for employment, I think it's partly of labor market shortages. They're still talking about labor market shortages in the oil patch, so they can't find the people and they can't increase their employment. And finally, that end of year price, we also asked them, what do you think the price is gonna be at the end of the year? And they've been saying $60 in, since the last two quarters, uh, fourth quarter of last year and, and this year. All right, so I'm going to wrap up to say there's always a lot of uncertainty in the oil market. I think it's a little bit higher now because we have a lot of geopolitical risk these days. Um, the market expects oil prices to be around 60 bucks. So I looked at the futures market the price, and if you look at it, it goes at 60 bucks for until mid-2020. But that doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's not a good predictor of future prices. That will change before uh, mid-2020 for sure. Now, um, the downside risks are, as I have there, low global growth, higher shale growth, and of course for the upside, we have Iranian sanctions, we have Middle East geopolitics, and we have <coughs> slower shale growth. As I said, U.S. grew by about 1.9 million barrels per day. Texas output grew by about 1 million barrels per day last year. But we aren't sure that we can actually duplicate that in 2019. So we think that the increases in both Texas and the U.S. are going to be a little bit less than what we had last year. And part of the reason for the slower growth is the decline from wells that were drilled last year. So the declines are going to increase this year because we drilled so many wells last year 
And you know that in, share, in the shale, that after the first eight to 10 months, these decline rates are quite high. So we think that's gonna come into effect. And the other reason is, of course, capital budgets are somewhat lower this year than last. Um, as I said, our correspondents or respondents are telling us $60 price is perfectly fine for them. But if it goes to 45 and it stays there for a while, then um, they think we might see some bankruptcies. Now, as I said earlier, although lower oil prices are overall good for the U.S. economy, um, lower oil activity lowers private fixed investment, and that has a negative effect on GDP. So um, that doesn't help GDP growth. And um, as I saw, showed you, U.S. is a major player. Texas is a major player in both oil and gas markets. Um, as we export more LNG, we're going to become increasingly more incorporated into the natural gas market. And my, before my voice goes, I should just st stop and just say, we expect continued uncertainty though. That is the one thing I think you'll see this year in the oil market. And if you need any um, information on energy, go up, please go to our website. And if you'd like to be a part of our survey, please see me after we're all done. Thank you. Um, I really uh, uh, appreciate the energy survey. I watched that carefully. Interesting to note that it really sort of neatly dovetailed with the petrol index. It declined in November and December, and then went back up in January. And that actually is the first time in the history of that piece of work that even a one-month decline didn't signal a contraction um, uh, of the real deal that lasted for some period of time and brought all the things with it that it brings. So I appreciate both of the comments about OPEC and the Saudis. Um, uh, from, uh, from just a big picture perspective, it seemed as though OPEC and the Saudis sat on the sidelines for quite some time during the 2014 to 2016 price collapse under this notion that the U.S. might become the new steam producer and all of, this, of that and respond production domestically to, uh, to uh, balance prices. Um, and so they sat on the sideline for some period of time until our production actually began to go up again and then they finally made a move. So did they learn a lesson in that experience uh, that translates into, for example, fourth quarter of 2019 and where we are right now? Start if you like. Um, well, so I think the 2014 decline they actually orchestrated that um, because what they decided, they sort of saw shale coming up strong and they thought, oops, you know, this is taking our market share away. So they decided that they were going to let the, you know, let, let's just be competitive out there. Let's just everybody produce however much they want to do. And the higher cost producers, as the price goes down, are going to get out of the market. So they thought they were actually going to drive shale out of the market. But that didn't happen, because what happened was technological progress and increased efficiency, I mean, in the U.S. field. So, uh, yes, we saw the rig count decline 2015, right? And we saw activity go down, but it came right back very quickly because there was a lot of um, efficiencies, technological innovation, cost cutting. We came right back. So what they learned was they couldn't push shale out of the market, I think. And so, what they're trying to do, they're trying to keep their market share. Um, I, it's, it's very hard, as I said, you know, they've got a really hard job, Saudi Arabia, because they don't, as if they don't want it too high, but they can't make it too low because their fiscal break evens are pretty high. So anyway, I'll leave it at that. 
that's exactly the right story in terms of the dynamics of how 2014 and 15 started this and what we've gone through. I would add that in the last year, though, the upturn and the extent to which production uh, has increased, productivity has increased, even in the industry, it wasn't fully expected. So the 1.9 million barrels per day that Manet uh, referenced in her presentation, that addition, and, and then you add natural gas liquids, all, all liquids, it's phenomenal. It's the most production any country has ever added in the history of oil production in one year. So it really is remarkable. It was unexpected. And as you were saying, it really is both a combination of technological progress with process improvements and, and improved efficiency. So to come back to the challenge going forward, you know, keep in mind that what Saudi Arabia is doing right now is trying to balance vis-a-vis -vis Iran also ready being subject to these sanctions, Venezuela naturally, naturally declining, plus having uh, geopolitical issues in terms of its economy. With those restraints, they're still having trouble getting Russia on board for further output reductions going forward from here. So keeping OPEC's house in order is a challenge right now to make the picture that we've seen. When the EIA paints this picture and you see market indicators, all consensus looking at $60 per barrel, knowing that the, these market indicators and futures won't be great predictors of it, frankly, it's hard, it's hard to see both um, the combination of factors that will markedly push it off of that, given the weight of how much U.S. production is coming, what Saudi is in and of itself able to, to manage to take off of the market. Well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not one to uh, argue with the two smartest people in the room, which would be the two of you. And in fact, uh, I'm, I'm not. I don't disagree with any of your characterizations about Saudis and OPEC and where they were in 2014. Uh, but just in terms of a little simple math, in mid-2014, when prices started to collapse, uh, global, uh, global uh, consumption was somewhere in the 95 million barrel a day range, and global consumption was somewhere uh, in the, pardon me, global production was 97 million barrel a day range, and consumption 95. So you got this little ribbon of 2 million barrels there. Uh, and in this period of time leading up to 2014, so let's say 2008, 2009, certainly post-recession, U.S. production increased by about 4 million barrels a day. So, um, it, so one could easily make the point that the U.S. is the chief offender in terms of raising global supply. And then the Saudis have to figure out how to react to that at that point in time. And so... Um, uh, so you can either believe that, yes, they would, would like to put the, uh, the, the high-cost shale producer out of business, or, assuming your fiscal break-evens are what they are, as prices are going down, the only way to maintain some revenue is to keep pumping out barrels. And so I don't know what that dynamic was, but anyway, that, that just that little math about that two million barrel a day ribbon is a pretty instructive. And what we did in the United States in terms of exploding our domestic production over that period of time. Um, so one quick question and then one final question. I think most economists, no matter what line of economic work they're in, have some ongoing general sense of when the next U.S. domestic recession is going to be. Um, yeah, thoughts on that from either of you? I'll let Dean go first. <laughs> so it, in the interest of time, I didn't put up a lot of slides on the economy, but you did see on the EIA's projections of the oil outlook how the economic growth is also expected to slow in, in, um, 
what's baked into the assumptions. So we, we're going from closer to 3%, 2.9 last year, to 2.4, you know, 2.5 this year, and that's expected to go under 2% um, you know, national real GDP growth for the United States next year. And if you take the Congressional Budget Office projections by 2021 and 2022, they creep down into the 1.5 range. Then on the global scale, you couple this, frankly, with nothing short of an emerging market crisis, depending upon what happens with international trade. Now, these clouds can clear. If, if China cuts a deal with the United States, and it's, it, the, the market, the stock market, is quite optimistic that, frankly, China's trade will hold up and its growth will hold up. But at this point, that's been a lot of speculation, and you've seen a lot of market volatility going back to December. So as that plays out, all of this is intertwined, where you had the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, give its largest ever lo loan of more than $50 billion to Argentina last quarter. You have the IMF also intervening and going and lending in places like Pakistan and Ghana and little San Marino. These are countries that are failing. And if you take all of the so-called BRICs, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. India had been the only one of them that was in reasonably good shape, and even its economic growth has been flagging a bit recently. So, look, this is not a doom and gloom picture altogether, but holding that together, and good sources to look at are the IMF, the Bank of International Settlements, if you're looking for sort of an objective international benchmark on those. Um, yeah, there are certainly challenges on the global front. We expect the stimulus in the U.S. to wear off some of the benefits from the, the uh, tax reform that we had this last year. So as if that's right and the consensus view is that you have this slowing, you know, the oil market goes together with that. I'll end with just giving you one rule of thumb to demystify the demand side, the consumption side globally. For the last few years, if you take global economic growth on a market exchange rate basis, so just straight up using actual exchange rates, what gets published as economic growth globally, and it's been, you know, this last year, around 3%. You divide by two, roughly, roughly, and that's your increase in million barrels per day of how much more demand the world's going to need in terms of oil. So this year, if you're seeing global growth expectations by the consensus of 2.8 or 9%, that 1.4 to 1.5 million barrels per day, that is exactly what the EIA says the world's going to need as an increase in 2019. I love being on a panel with you because I agree with everything you said. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I don't think I can add to it. The only thing I'll say is, um, in terms of recession, I can't tell you what our bank, I mean, I won't say what I think, but I was president of NABE last year, and I'll give you the NABE. Uh, we just had a business National outlook. National Association of Business Economics. And we just had a business outlook uh, survey. And the business, and these are all business economists, and what they're thinking is the probability of, of recession was only 20% for the fourth quarter of 2019, and then it went up to about 35% for all of 2020. So if you look at business economists in practice right now, this, their surveys, they're saying that for 2020, even for next year, it's about 35%. So. Did you participate in that survey? Business, yeah, you did. No, I, so, I, I did. So that's two of the three of us I participated <laughs> in the survey. <laughs> um, I appreciate the reference to global demand. I mean, that's sort of the missing, uh, often uh, a, a uh, piece of the puzzle that's more difficult to get our arms around. Everybody knows 
what's happening on the production side of the equation. And then it's just sort of a nebulous thing out there. What's going to happen in terms of global demand and the global economy and relative to energy demand for, let's say, the balance of 2019 moving into 2020? Um, and so I appreciate you covering that from that perspective. Uh, so just one last uh, discussion that could be an hour-long discussion about climate change needs to be about a two-minute discussion, um, which is impossible. But So let's, let's assume, which I don't, by the way, and I'm reasonably assured that most of the room, or at least certainly not nearly all of the room, uh, would, uh, would agree to the notion uh, that there is considerable um, a risk from climate change. Um, and uh, so, but let's say we agree to that notion and that that implies some policy prescription to deal with that, uh, which may mean, who knows what that looks like. And we've seen all versions of this from cap and trade to carbon tax to now Green New Deal and things associated with that. So would the serious economist, uh, and I hope the answer to this question is yes, Again, assuming that we all agree, which we don't, on the need for that policy prescription, um, is there not an economic cost to implementing that policy prescription? And do we not need to consider whether or not uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, trouble, the difficulty that that economic cost imposes against the benefit that it provides? The easy question, I'm sure. No, you're absolutely correct. Um, I personally, I'll just put it out there, it's not the Fed, me, and I do believe in climate change. But, um, as you said, the, the, the costs of mitigating climate change are quite high. And then the benefits, it's way out in the future, so it's really hard to compare the benefits and the costs, I think. Um, so that's part of the problem. And, but what I'd say is, as an economist, when you look at, uh, say, fossil fuels, there is some externality that comes out of the fossil fuel, which is either pollution or CO2 or whatever. And, and when an economist looks at anything that has some negative spillovers, they'll say, well, again, this is going to be jargon a little bit, but the, the social cost and the private cost, the private cost is how much it costs to produce the thing. The social cost includes all those negative spillovers that they're not aligned. And so to make things efficient, you need to align that. So the problem is, though, how do you align that? And so everybody has some solution to aligning it. Carbon tax, cap and trade, this, that, whatever. Um, so, you know, if you are going to try to align those costs, then you got to do something. But what that something is, nobody agrees. And I have to say, it's really expensive to do the mitigation. For example, again, I'm going on a little bit more, but well, just one thing. In Europe, for example, they've decided well, we're going to get rid of um, all fossil fuels by 2050 or something like that. That is very, very expensive. Um, so you have, when you make these decisions, you really have to look at the cost of what, what that's going to cost you, like you said. And if you look at the Green New Deal, that is almost, I mean, that, that physically I think it's impossible to get to a 100% renewal in 10 years. That's just totally impossible. And the costs are so, I mean, it's so costly that I don't think anybody will want to do that. But the one thing I can say positively about the Green New Deal is at least it started people talking about it, maybe. And so people, it sort of brought everything in the spotlight and people have started debating things. But other than that, I don't think 
you know, government mandates, the costs, it's just not a, a something that can be done, <laughs> in my view. So to segue directly off of that, Douglas Holtz Eakin has a nice article out right now looking at trying to quantify pieces of the Green New Deal. And when you do surveys of what people are willing to pay in terms of mitigating climate change, most households are in favor of it, but they're willing to pay at most maybe like $10 a month. Well, there are various components to the Green New Deal, one of, just one of which is this 100% renewable power grid and all of the replacement within 10 years of the existing majority fossil fuel-based electricity uh, generation system that we have in the United States. Just the cost of that, by his estimates, amounts to $39,000 for every single household. So if you put $120 a year in contrast with $39,000, that tells you what kind of gap might need to be closed. Now, in terms of general API and as an economist, positions on climate change and regulation in general. API member companies, we take positions that are consistent with our membership as a trade association. And to be honest, our member companies don't fully agree on it, but they do acknowledge that there are genuine risks and uncertainties going forward with it. And we do need an honest discussion about the costs and the benefits that go with these things. Now, what API is doing is advancing in the upstream side an environmental partnership. So we have more than 60 companies that have signed on to take very concrete steps to do what we can do, the low-hanging fruit, so to speak. So going out in the field in terms of gas production and using, implementing current technology for imaging to see where there are methane lakes, detect them early, treat them. Install pneumatic controllers that are either zero or low bleed so that you're replacing traditional you know, fiscal controllers out in the field that only depended upon the flow of gas and had, to t had higher leakage rates. So that's another step. Liquids offloading and oil production, trying to make sure that we're using best practices there. These are the low-hanging low fruit where if you can start to put those into the field, you reduce what we can in terms of the emissions that are coming directly from the industry's production. And at the same time, you're trying to have a debate about the larger societal issues and honestly, transparently, what the costs and benefits really are. Green New Deal, I would reaffirm, is unrealistic in terms of the cost. It's aspirational. It's hard to be against those things as an individual or an economist. But what you're willing to pay in terms of what it would actually impose of super high costs on the U.S. economy has to be actually out there in a very transparent way. Uh, uh, even as an economist, I, so far I haven't found it all that difficult to be against most of that stuff. Uh, because I think it's an uh, utter interruption of private market functions that I think have served us well for a long time. And in fact, um, accidentally, I believe this is the first time I've ever referred to it as a Green New Deal and not the Green Raw Deal, which I'm pretty sure I was the first guy to say that. But uh, in any case, um, uh, we could have a long discussion about that, um, uh, but uh, I think it's probably a little past time for us to shut this down at this point. So uh, again, thanks to the both of you. It's just my honor to sit up here with you and get to engage in this discussion. Thank you for coming to uh, be with us today. Please join me in thanking you. Thank you for listening. For more information on what you've just heard, please visit the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers. You can find that link to their website in the show notes. 
Also to be found in the show notes will be links to all the organizations that let us borrow materials and expertise from them, including the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank and the American Petroleum Institute. Ryan and Josh will return next week with an interview with Carr Ingham. With a special thanks to our sponsor, Baffin Bay Rod and Gun, this is your producer, Nate Hansen, signing off and telling you to keep climbing. (laughs) 